Hello, 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 and welcome to the 8th official episode of the Economical Rice Podcast. I'm your host, Danny, and over here, we'll preserve you the grains of capitalism. Now, when I was growing up back in the 90s in Singapore, the notion of success was heavily influenced by the type of career you had. As such, if you wanted to become successful, don't even think about, you know, becoming an athlete, a painter, or a musician. Rather, what my parents regularly pointed out, and what some of my teachers did as well, was that the only viable op- op- occupations out there were being a doctor, a lawyer, or a banker. So this narrow set of successful careers influenced much of our academic choices growing up, be it the schools we go to, the subjects we take, or even the activity groups that we become involved in. However, it is hard to ignore some of the consequences that this perception has bred. Since these notions of success were external rather than internal, it was not uncommon for career success and personal unhappiness to be closely related. This is supported by how Singapore ranked the worst in a 2016 Asia-Pacific study of job satisfaction conducted by Sandbox Advisors. Most notably, when asked the question, what makes you happy and engages an employee, Singapore ranked the following three in descending order, better pay, enjoying work, and making a difference. As such, it was likely the case that Singaporeans put up with work rather than enjoyed it. Now, what could be a strong factor as well is how little perceptions of successful career choice have changed relative to the change in the overall economy. Where rapid technology development has given birth to new industries such as fintech, social media marketing, and the gig economy, why are there still so many students still pursuing the same traditionally popular courses such as business, medicine, or law? What changes could be made to increase employee engagement and satisfaction in their careers? What is responsible for the disconnect between individual passion and career choice? In helping me to answer these questions, I'm incredibly grateful to be able to talk to Louise Poir, founder of the company Praxium. Now, Praxium is a company that runs workshops and programs to help individuals figure out their ideal career paths. On their website, they point out that they are a career discovery institute, seeking to help people of all ages live in alignment with their purpose and build a successful career around their passions and aptitudes. Furthermore, they also provide a network of professionals from a vast array of industries where students can engage with a role model or a mentor. In a time where the economy is rapidly changing, Praxium is the private sector initiative that is seeking to modernize the way we think about career choices. Louis, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right. So first off, I noticed that on your Facebook page uh, for Praxium, you you have a lot of uh, videos where you talk about some of your motivation and some of your reasonings and some of the the ideas that you want to teach uh, younger students today. So in one of your videos, uh, you talk about some of the reasons why you decided to start Praxium, such as there being a lack of critical thinking in Singapore or, you know, there being an overbearing top-down approach to education. So I'm curious then, what was your own experience with uh, Singaporean education? And having visited some schools recently, do you think that has changed much since your time? I think when I was growing up, I don't really enjoy school very much. Um, Everything was really top-down. Everything was... Uh, you have a multitude of subjects to take on. Mm-hmm. And it was just a very tedious process of going to school in the morning, going through a set routine, right. and then finishing at the end of the day. And it was really unfulfilling. Like, I don't see the, didn't see the point in everything that I was learning. Okay. But I was kind of fortunate and privileged, really, to uh, be admitted into this first batch of integrated program mm. uh, 
at Victoria JC. Mm. So that was the first time they were running it and I decided to just give it a shot. So, uh, so what was special about the, the program? So other than the fact that it was the first batch, yeah. uh, the other thing was that I realised along the way was how it wasn't very structured. Mm. Unlike the traditional uh, secondary school systems, mm. um, it didn't have a particular syllabus it had to follow. Mm. With the integrated program, they um, took advantage of the fact that we didn't have to do our O-levels yeah. to allow us to learn many more things that were outside of uh, the structured curriculum in Singapore. I see. So we one, one particular subject that was awesome was this subject called Language Arts. Oh. And it's really like liberal arts kind of thing. Yeah. But for like 15 and 16 year old kids. Yeah, it's, a, it's an eye opener, right? Yeah, and it's amazing because we started to be exposed to things like politics, philosophy, mm. uh, language and semantics. We started to mm. be exposed to art forms and movements. And all of that really opened up my mind to a lot more. Yeah. And the way that uh, the teachers taught, mm. they didn't come from a particular syllabus and then like, uh, form up the lesson plans and then uh, deliver it mm. uh, like a like a recipe or anything. Mm. It was very much um, them responding to us in the class itself. Oh really? So they could see like for certain topics we responded well. Yeah. So they tailored their experiences for the next class to cater to our interests oh. and so on and so forth. So a lot of the programs, um, a lot of the lessons and the way they taught mm. were were done in that particular way. Okay. And it got me kind of quite comfortable with uncertainty. Because yeah. I never knew what was coming next. I, I don't know what's yeah. the next thing I should yeah. be studying for, but things worked out. Yeah. And I think in Singapore, we we like to think that the guidebook approach, right? Like yeah. There's a 10-year series, and yes, you just yes, follow yes, that yes, and it'll yes. work out. I did have to go through that, and I still did really well for my academics. Mm. So I guess like it gave me confidence that you don't have to follow a, a trot, like a like a tried and tested path mm. in order to find a, a way out. Yeah. So I also also want to point out. I, th- I thought this was an interesting thing that you brought up. That back back when you were in secondary school, you found you you started to to realize that you didn't really like education. So w- w- would you say that the some of your you know unhappiness with the uh, your secondary school education was due to like a lack of options in the, the type of subject matter that's being taught. When I was younger, I think I, I kind of knew what I liked and what I enjoyed. Mm. Um, I played a lot of video games. Yeah. I actually find I learned a lot from them. Okay. Um, even in things like philosophy and politics, right? Yeah. Um, so I had interests of my own and I had uh, intellectual curiosities and all. Oh. It's just that school didn't seem to cater to that. It was more about like the nuts and bolts and yeah. how to add and subtract. Yeah. And to give an example, um, in math, um, typically when you learn math, the, the teacher just tells you the formula, how it yeah. works, and yeah. then you just solve problems. Yeah. I remember one particular lesson I had in the IP program where mm-hmm. we had to learn about the Pythagoras theorem. Yeah. And the teacher just gave us a triangle and just asked us, how are you going to find the, the area for the triangle without giving us a formula? Right. So we had to kind of struggle through that and find creative ways to solve the problem. Mm. And that really worked out. So that kind of satiated the, the curiosity that I had. Uh, the willingness to learn and the wanting to learn really mm. well. As compared to a traditional system where it's the teacher telling you what to learn, the teacher telling you how to learn. Mm. And that was kind of restricting and constricting for me. Yeah. Yeah, and then 
and I'm sure I'm sure a lot of uh, Singaporeans or Singaporean students, right? They they have this experience whereby maybe it was like O level prelims or A level prelims, right? They they were, they were doing all these practice that you series. Yeah. Even in like science, they were memorizing the 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 answers to the <laughs> word, right? Yeah. <laughs> because they weren't sure if like different different ways of answering the question could be marked the same way. And to, to push it even further, even like English paper and general paper, yes, yes, yes. have a model essay kind of yes, thing. Yes, yes. Which is, which is, you know, kind of the wrong way to think about it because, how, how do I put it? When, when you teach like a GP course, the, the, some, some of the principles behind it is you want to enforce like critical thinking, ideas of thinking about this from, from different points of view, different perspectives, yeah. right? When you force this sort of like, you know, this is the model answer kind of, mentality right it, it's sort of you, incent- you incentivize students to just say okay give us the model answer we'll memorize it and then we'll score well yeah yeah they, they, it doesn't it doesn't lead them to say oh you know we, we, we'll try to approach this from this different point of points of view and then we'll see what works or, uh-huh. or you know or we'll be graded on based on the merit of our argumentation argumentation rather than merit of how well we memorize yeah exactly that points yeah i think it's it's a challenging thing to be honest because um, I empathize with the teachers mm. class of 30 and 40 it's Definitely. really hard to give that level of coaching yeah. to help all of them really develop critical thinking yeah, yeah. so the scalable way is just to work on model answers and hope you see the patterns among the model answers yeah. a lot of times people don't know that's true that's the yeah <laughs> alright so I was looking up on your background as well, right? I was going through LinkedIn and I found that you had experience both working and studying in the United States. So could you tell me what, what that experience was like and what was the biggest takeaway or influence you had from your time? I think that, that uh, time that I spent there, mm-hmm. I don't say this often, but I think it was pretty life-changing and <laughs> it, it sounds really cliche yeah. and I don't like that kind of cliche. Right, right, but right. It really was... Um, a couple of ways that it was really life-changing for me. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest takeaway really was how um, the private sector yeah. and small companies yeah. can make such a huge difference. Um, I mean, everyone has seen like the social network, right? The Facebook yeah. movie and all that. Yeah. But being there amongst them and living with uh, the startups and like walking down a street and seeing Mark Zuckerberg like just on the street beside mm. you kind of thing, <laughs> it, it's a really surreal feeling mm. and to think that um, Mark Zuckerberg for example just perhaps 10 years ago was mm. a nobody mm. and within 10 years he pretty much changed how people fundamentally communicate at least in the first world right right and that was the impact that a, a private organization could have made yeah rather than a government for example yeah yeah so I found that quite inspiring and I saw that pattern happen over and over again in MNCs actually less so in MNCs now it's more so in like the, these tech companies right Right. and I think that was the biggest takeaway that an individual could do something that has a real impact on people yeah I find, I find it amazing actually because if you look at it another way right the whole story of like Mark Zuckerberg you know from like nobody to to billionaire or like one of the most successful entrepreneurs out there right? yeah. it's, it's basically it's essentially you know, and, and with and maybe you could say this of like the Silicon uh, Valley entrepreneurs as a whole is that is this is this whole idea of like the the American dream wrapped up or supercharged? Yeah. You know, for them, you know, the 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 American idea, the American dream was like you know, the pulling up by your bootstraps, taking your taking the initiative and going out to make change or yeah. to make your own life by yourself, right? 
and I guess for the Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, that, that they kind of, kind of emboldened that and t- took that to the next level, yeah. turbocharged it. Okay, so, so moving on to the uh, last question on, on your personal background, right? So building up on the idea that you learned from the Silicon Valley and your experience in America to light that entrepreneurial fire inside you. Yeah. So what, what, what were your career plans when you grew up? Or, or was it the case that you didn't really know what you want to do, but it's sort of like set in stone once you had that experience in America? Mm. Well, I think it's a journey. Um, mm. There were two, two distinct, uh, somewhat somewhat distinct paths that I thought I could take when I was younger. Yeah. Uh, when I was nine, mm-hmm. uh, I had to write an essay in Chinese about what I wanted to be when I grow up. Okay. Uh, and I wrote that I wanted to be a game designer. <laughs> so it was like, <laughs> something along those lines. Right, right? Right, right. So, um, because I've been immersed in playing a game since I was four. Mm. Like MS-DOS install from floppy disk kind mm. of stuff. So, that was really uh, fascinating for me. You know, yeah. I was really passionate about that. Yeah. So that was one clear thing that I could pursue. Um, the other thing was entrepreneurship. Uh, that kind of came from a family background because mm. my parents were both entrepreneurs. Mm. So I think there's definitely some influence there. Mm. Um, over dinner tables, they would always talk about the work they do, um, the kind of mindset they have when you approach work. I so I think that partly rubbed off. Oh. And along the way... Um, I was thinking, can I synergize the two? Is there a way to combine them? Yeah. And it was just this whole journey of um, introspection and, and reflection about how I can make it work. Mm. Um, along the way, I think I tried to explore the path of game design mm. and think about it a bit further. And I realized that game design is kind of different from playing games. <laughs> different. Yeah. Um, but I didn't want to give up uh, that field because after all, I spent years of my life on it. Mm. I must have gained something from it that was useful. Right. So I thought that um, I, I realized one interesting thing. You, mm. you know World of Warcraft? Yeah. It's like really popular back then at least. Yeah. And um, I looked at it objectively. Uh-huh. It, it was really mundane, mm-hmm. but people still enjoyed doing it. And, and to be fair, like I tried it and it was quite enjoyable. Mm. But if you look at it objectively, it's really boring. Yeah. <laughs> and I saw a parallel to that in the working world. Adults mm. who go to work and don't really enjoy it, mundane mm. as hell, routine, come yeah. back home, earn their pay, go on a holiday. And yeah. that routine just happened over and over again. But the difference is they don't enjoy their work. Yeah. Unlike the players and gamers who enjoy the mundane repetition, yeah. people who go to work don't enjoy that. <laughs> so I thought it's kind of sad, right, that um, for humanity and society to progress, mm. it's on the backs of people's suffering. <laughs> so I thought mm. if, if I could learn something about games and how I can translate that fun experience right into mm. work, mm. could human the human condition like benefit from that? Mm. So that was one interesting uh, angle that I went down. Yeah. And so I explored game design a bit further mm. and I chanced upon uh, user experience design. Mm. It was quite a new and upcoming field, and I found that it was largely trying to do the same thing that I was thinking about, mm. making people enjoy their experiences more. Yeah. So then I went deeper into that. I see. Yeah. That's, that's a fa- fascinating parallel that you yeah. drew there. So I guess sort of like jumping, building on, on that idea, right, to, you know, you, where, where you had this idea of, um, you know, trying to improve the working experience for people. 
incorporating the elements of like game design, taking mm-hmm. your, your your interest and your passions to the, sort of the next level. So, so how did how do you jump from game design to the field of say education, uh, and and sort of like where where the idea of uh, Praxium came about? Yeah, you know, there's definitely a big gap between what what I just yeah said yeah and education yeah um but. Well, the, the same thing can be said, right? In school, it's kind of routine. It's kind mm. of mundane. People don't enjoy it. Yeah. So I thought that could be a meaningful way to, to improve people's experiences, to mm. enjoy uh, what they do in school. Mm. Um, the previous idea about improving people's uh, experiences with work, yeah. that was a bit tough. <laughs> I realized that in the business world, it's all about the, the money. <laughs> and um, improving experiences in the workplace um, will definitely cause some compromise in terms of the bottom line yeah. uh, efficiency and productivity. Yeah. So I figured, okay, that may not work so well. But uh, I thought in education, maybe that's a, a more meaningful way. Mm. Having having the experience of hating my earlier part of my education, I thought that could be meaningful to work on. I see. Yeah, yeah so um, I think there were a lot of things that contributed to starting Praxium. Mm. And... Um, Praxium as it is today, like career discovery and all that, mm-hmm. that came about uh, from a very pragmatic standpoint. Mm. Um, I looked at education as a whole, yeah. and from a parent standpoint, from a kid standpoint, yeah. the biggest concern that people really have is, if my kid goes to this school, can he, have a, can he get a job at an yeah. You can say all you want about all the critical thinking and creativity and innovation. Yeah. I care about all those things. Yeah. But honestly speaking, no one's going to pay for that. Mm. No one's going to put their kid through a school that only covers that. Mm. So I figured if I can, within a short amount of time, help you guarantee or at least help you with a high level of certainty, get into a, a career or a job that you enjoy mm. and you can do well at it. Mm. And that's a great starting point. If I can promise you that I can do that in two years, then perhaps you can trust me further to yeah. resolve everything else. Yeah. So that's kind of how it came about. Uh, the idea for practicing. See, okay. Then, what what were some of the challenges that you faced in like coming up with the the business? Um, or maybe some of the challenges that you still yeah. you still face <laughs> today. <laughs> yeah, the biggest challenge really is uh, changing mindsets and culture. Mm. I see. So this education system we are so used to, um, top down structured. Um, it's created this mindset of uh, complacency. Yeah. Where you are being hand-holded and spoon-fed everything you need. Yes. Um, if you're not doing well enough, I'll give you tuition. Yeah. If you're not doing it, uh, good enough, I uh, will do extra classes for you. Mm-hmm. Very little uh, student-initiated uh, motivation uh, is present. Everything they kind of need, uh, schools generally provide. To the point that as a student... Um, you would think that, oh, if there's anything I need, my teachers will tell me, my school will provide, so I'll just follow along, mm. walk down the path, and mm. I'll end up where I need to be. Mm. I think that's the biggest challenge. Because as we know today, um, the education system we have isn't adequately preparing our young people for the workforce in the future. Yeah. And that's a big problem. You know, so, some of it has to do with like, some of the stuff you mentioned earlier about your experience in VJC about facing uncertainty and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, I guess it, it is really a difficult sort of mindset. Yeah. Mindset to change. It's, you know. it's like a vicious cycle, right? Mm. Um, 
we live a, a traditional life, a conventional uh, life, mm. and as a result, um, certain successes come about from that conventional life, yeah. and we further feed that narrative that this is the way to go. Yeah. But the more we demonize the unconventional paths, the other alternative uh, perspectives and paths, mm. um, the less we're going to see successes from there. Yeah. Just, yeah. just to share one more thing, right? Um, most people think to get into university, you need good grades. Um, NUS, for example, is a good school, mm. although its ranking dropped recently. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they think you need to get really good grades to get to NUS. Mm. Um, I recently got to know of a student who scored like DDEE or something, mm. and he still got into NUS. Oh, really? And most people are going to think that's impossible. Yeah. It's a freak case. And they, they write it off as chance. Yeah. But what they don't see is everything else about the student. Mm. The extracurricular stuff he does, the things he does outside of school, mm. um, the kind of uh, skills he hones, the passion he, he develops. They don't see that. They just see the grades. Mm. And because of problems like this, they, they, they still don't believe it. And they don't pay attention to what matters more. Yeah. And then they feed this narrative that doesn't work anymore. Yeah. And I guess, and I guess also you could say one of the scarier consequences of this kind of mentality is that, you know, in the long run, if, if things don't work out, if the, if the plan that, you know, your society or your parents has been feeding you all this, all this while to be successful doesn't work out, mm-hmm. you're left, you're left stuck there not knowing what to do. You're, you're yeah. basically saying, you know, I've, I've been doing all these things. Why am, why aren't I successful already? Yeah. Rather than saying, you know, it, it, why haven't I been daring enough to go and try all these new things? Or why haven't I picked up this new skill? Or why yeah. haven't I upgraded myself? Yeah. So, all right. One, one of the... Mm. Um, there was this uh, article, right? About, yeah. Uh, this nurses at a, um, a hospice. Yeah. And they talk about one of the biggest regrets, yeah. top regrets that people that are dying have. Mm. And that top regret is living a life that was what other people expected of them. So it's rather than living a life that you wanted to live. Yeah. And it kind of fits into this story also Mm. that you follow a certain path. It wasn't a path you wanted. Mm. Um, You hope it works out. But from what we hear about people on the deathbeds, Mm. it's something they end up regretting. Yeah. Wow, that's kind of kind of grim actually yeah, yeah, yeah I think about death a lot because death gives meaning to life <laughs> so that's another interesting contrast right there but perhaps for another conversation yeah. so let's move on um, okay so so I want to ask this question right so I noticed on your website that you Praxium participated in the Young Social Entrepreneurs Workshop in yeah. 2016 I want to ask then what, what kind of experience or what kind of uh, knowledge you gain from these kind of events and how important is it for, for entrepreneurs to attend these kind of events? Uh, the Young Social Entrepreneurs Workshop, that was just a one-off event, mm. but it led up to a program and a mentorship uh, arrangement and everything. So mm. um, I went for the workshop. Uh, we learned a couple of like business model, canvas, that yeah. kind of stuff. Certain tools to help you structure your business. Yeah. Um, but all of that wasn't the biggest value of the workshop. Mm. Um, the biggest value was really the, the connections that were made, the friendships that were forged, mm. the, the networks that you built. Um, when you ask how important is it for entrepreneurs to attend these kind of events, mm. um, it really depends on what you need, but <laughs> it never hurts to have more friends. It never hurts to have more contacts. I and I think that's the biggest reason to attend any event. 
Because these people could be your future customers or these yeah. people could be your partners. In the future. And you never know. Yeah. Uh, many people tend to think of networking as transactional. Yeah. You go there, you want something, right, and right. you want to hope you can give as little and get as much. <laughs> and that kind of give, gives networking a bad name. Yeah. Um, what I experienced really was how it's just going there, making friends, mm. being curious about people's lives, and maybe one day in the future, paths will cross again, mm. and you never know if things would work out. Mm. So it's just this genuine willingness to connect with people mm. and I think that's quite important for an entrepreneur because um, business right it's about me serving you yeah. a, a business serving a person yeah. and there are always ways to serve people I see it's interesting alright so speaking of serving people yeah. now we're going to move on to talking about the value proposition of Praxium so you know earlier we discussed the ideas for some of the reasons you had for, for studying Praxium but in terms of career choice what sort of specific gap or problem do you think Praxium is looking to fill? Mm, I always have trouble with questions like this because um, there's a lot of aspects to it. Yeah. I'll start with the short-term perspective. Okay. Um, the short-term perspective is really that um, young people are feeling very lost. Students who just graduate from university tend to feel very, very lost. They don't know which jobs to take up and they feel like Perhaps their college degree was kind of wasted. They yeah. didn't really enjoy it. Yeah. Wish they did something else. Economy changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that, that, that first gap, really. Um, so we try to tackle that by dealing with students before university. Helping mm. them figure that out so that as they get into university, they can make the, the module choices, the internship choices, all that that can help them gain clarity mm. and help them figure things out. Yeah. Um, I mentioned earlier that uh, career discovery is a journey. Yeah. It's not overnight. So this is the so, medium and long term. Yeah, which is why uh, we start them off younger when they're in their teenage years. Mm. So that as they go through university, they figure themselves out. Mm-hmm. If they can figure it out earlier, it's yeah. even better. Um, as compared to working with graduates, because that's kind of tough, because opportunity cost is high. Yeah. Um, every day you spend learning about something mm-hmm. is a day you're not working as yeah. much and income is an issue. So... That's why we focused on uh, younger students. Mm. Uh, that's not long-term enough, honestly. Like The long-term thing is really looking at people in their middle, middle-age phase of their life, mm. in their 40s and 50s. Okay. Um, I do some work with the Ministry of Manpower, mm. and one challenge they face now is the PMETs, professionals, managers, executives, mm. and what's T again? Technician. Uh, technician, yeah, perhaps. Probably. <laughs> so, um, they're facing a lot of challenges because many of them are getting retrenched. Mm. Uh, and they are out of options and they're unemployed and this can last for like six months up to a year yeah. or more. And that's a really pressing problem. Mm. Um, but if you look at this problem, right, it doesn't start from like when they're working. It starts way earlier. Mm. It starts from the point of figuring out what to do with their career in the first place. And many people who get retrenched, some of the feedback uh, that career coaches have um, from these people, mm. um, their analysis of uh, these peop- uh, retrenched workers is that they're not really passionate about work. Mm. They want to do something that can help them earn a certain income. Yeah. And if you're in that kind of mindset, it's hard for you to think about doing excellent work. Mm. And innovation rarely happens in that kind of environment. Right, right. So think about it, as compared to someone who's passionate about work, who spends weekends going for events and learning things, 
who spends his nights picking up new skills. Mm. Um, of course, the people who are not passionate are going to drop out. Of course, they can't measure up. Mm. And that's a big problem in the long run. Mm. And that's the kind of life that um, people are destined for if they don't think deeper about their lives and their careers. Alright, so, so this, this is good uh, for sort of, sort of talking about the, through the long, short, medium-term uh, problems that Braxton's looking to fill. So on your website, I, I noticed that you have two distinct uh, product offerings, the deep, deep Dive and the Pathways Program. So could you tell us what they are and how they provide value to participants? Okay, uh, we are restructuring that a little, but mm. I'll just share uh, how they are like now. Sure. So the Pathways Program, we typically run it with schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a like half a day program where students get to pick from a range of like 10 different careers mm. across very different sectors mm. and they get to experience what it's like to do that work. Uh, okay. They get to pick up a tree or something. Yeah. So they just try a, a few. Okay. Uh, so what it really helps with is for them to uh, clear any misconceptions they may have about that field of work. Mm. So for example, uh, most people think that design is all about making pretty graphics making mm-hmm. things look nice. <laughs> yeah. But that's just a really small part of design. Yeah. Design is really about planning to solve a problem mm. and finding out the best way to solve a problem. And it actually can get pretty scientific. Mm. And it's something people don't really know or realize. And people think also that um, design can't make much money. Like parents will say, like, well, you do design, it's, you're not going to make a living from that. Yeah. Uh, but it's not true because you need designers in engineering companies, you need designers in tech companies, mm. and it's all about how you apply the skill of design rather than the design itself. Mm. Uh, artists nowadays are also taking on a lot of design skills. They're taking on a lot of other projects. They oh. work with large companies to create installations. Oh. And all of this is changing, and people still hold on to the misconceptions of the past, of what things used to be like. Yeah. And uh, we really help try to deal with that with the Pathways program where students try out a bunch of things hmm. and they open their eyes to what's possible and what's available. I see. Yeah, I guess, I guess this would be good for, for some of the careers that, that, you know, the traditionally popular ones like being yeah. in, in maybe in, in finance or medicine or law. Yeah. I saw that in one of your programs you did for a session on law, law right? Yeah, that's right. Some of the students, they were like saying, you know, well, I didn't know you had to do so much reading and research. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so it was just like, like going to trials. Yeah, and stuff you watch like shows that. like Suits, right? And yeah. Hong Kong dramas about lawyers, and yeah. you see them going to court, looking yeah. so charismatic and cool, yeah. arguing for their clients, so confident. And everything. Yeah, yeah. But my my wife happens to be a lawyer, mm. and lawyers spend less than five percent of their time in court. <laughs> they do a whole bunch more reading, and I think people really understand underestimate the reading they need to do. Yeah. I have been to like law offices and everything and a single case can have boxes of files that stack up to the ceiling. Yeah. Multiple rows of it and it's crazy. Yeah. And that's the kind of uh, intensity of work and reading you need to do. Yeah. And we kind of simulate that when we work with students. Yeah. What we're trying to prevent is from them pursuing law as a career mm-hmm. and then figuring out like after 10 years of education that yes. damn, this is not for me. Yes. And and I'm not talking like about like some fictitious scenario. It's mm. actually happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lawyers are leaving their jobs after a single year, and yes. yet we have too many lawyers. Yes. And that's a huge problem. Yeah, it's like, it's like you know we were talking about this uh, disconnect uh, between you know what what 
individuals' passions are and what what they're, they're actually doing, right? Yeah. But in some cases, that's not really the truth. Some of them may, may have been growing up really, you know, saying, oh, I really want to become a doctor. I really want to become a lawyer. Yeah. But when they actually do do the job, they find that their the reality doesn't match their expectation. Exactly. Yeah, and it, it's become, it becomes a crushing disappointment. Yeah, and there's them. this level of uh, honesty that, that is hard to find sometimes because... Mm. Um, law schools or polytechnics and, mm. and educational institutions, mm. they, of course, want to put themselves in the best light. They want to talk about how their students are amazing. They go yeah. into amazing careers. Yeah. And I don't blame them. It's it's part of their business, after all. Mm-hmm. But what they forget is that um, in the long term, there could be problems with that because people are chasing after prestige, yeah. after pay, without realizing what they need to do for that. Yeah. And after a while, like spending years in a certain career that you hate, yeah. or you don't like, or you don't enjoy, yeah. and it's tough. Yeah. Things start to look really bleak. Yeah. And and speaking of that, uh, on the idea of school, right? You, I, I think a, a really nice uh, facet of your your programs, right, is that you focus more on sort of the experience of the work. Yeah. Rather than you know just saying, hey, this is what uh, you know, having just like a an, an hour presentation slide on on what. What a day! What, yeah, what, what yeah, a yeah. day in the life of a lawyer. That's what's happening nowadays with uh, career talks in school. Yeah, yeah. So, so I guess how 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 important would you say this uh, idea of the experience is to sort of exposing uh, kids to to, to about, about the different careers? I think it's extremely important. Mm. Um, we are increasingly uh, cognitive beings. Mm. Uh, we forget that there's an emotional side to ourselves, mm. and that's something you can't get from reading online. Mm. It's not something you can get purely from a presentation. You need to try it out yourself. Yeah. Um, for example, if you are thinking about being an artist, yeah. it looks really cool, glamorous, yeah. you, you make nice pictures. But and, and an artist can tell you everything about the process of mm. doing research, practicing and all that. But it isn't until you pick up the pencil and try to draw your first figure yeah. that you realize, wow, things are kind of <laughs> I can't really describe this this feeling <laughs> like creative block and everything yeah. <laughs> and it's really important to have that because that's what you're gonna face day by day in the yeah, yeah. setting yeah uh, yeah so uh, to, they, they, in today's setting it's all about scale efficiency and all that right and they think googling will solve all your problems mm. it'll solve like maybe 60, 70, 80% of your problems but it's not gonna uh, be able to help you do the crux of it. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, in in the sense of the when you're looking for a job, right? If you're going to rely on Google, then that's not going to. You know, why why would the company want to hire you if they yeah. can just look up the answers on on a Google? Right? Yeah. So it doesn't really make you stand out in that yeah. sense. There's a thing about uh, quantitative and qualitative data as well. Mm. Quantitative data is always easier to trust. Mm. Uh, you see the pay. Of a certain job. Mm. Oh, this job earns you five thousand a month. This yeah. job earns you two thousand a month. Yeah. Obviously, the five thousand dollar a month job is better. Yeah. It's like more than double. Mm. But when you look at the qualitative sides of both things, it's really hard to tell the value of those jobs. Mm-hmm. Two thousand dollar job might sound pretty close to what the five thousand dollar job uh, entails, like mm. qualitatively speaking. Mm. But it could be so different, and you can't tell through just reading. Yeah. You have to really try it out. Yeah, it's true. Oh, yeah, we talked about the deep dive, right? Right, Right, we haven't talked about the the other program yet. Yeah, I'll just breeze through that quickly. Yeah, Um, sure. Basically, um, after the phase of exploration and exposure to the various careers, Mm. the next step really is to start picking up some skills. 
mm. to start developing yourself in that particular area. Okay. So the first step is really the hardest, and that's what we kind of try and help with. Mm. So, um, we, for example, one of the deep dive programs we ran was around the realm of game design. Mm-hmm. We had students who were really interested in games, just like myself and yeah, yeah. Um, and we kind of took them through a mentoring coaching program where we helped them learn programming, helped them learn design. Okay. And over six months, they developed their own mobile game and mm. uploaded it onto the app store. Oh wow! Published and everything. So. So this was, was, this, was this with a school or was this a... It was with students directly. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So a group of students came to us, uh, they wanted to do this oh. and they managed to produce a game at the end hmm. of six months from zero knowledge up, all the way up to that. Okay. And um, it was really, really valuable for them because other than that whole experience of actually creating a game, mm. programming and everything, um, they managed to use what they created to gain early admissions into some of the schools and courses that they wanted to get into. Mm. Um, and that's what I talk about, the non-academic stuff mm. that can really add value. Yeah, That's what Deep Dive Program was supposed to offer. I see. And it's more than just like your DSA, like I was a president of the <laughs> soccer club or something. <laughs> yeah. it, it's way more uh, specific than that. Yeah. So I guess in, 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 in a sense, this is like you know, some a, a lot of millennials they gripe about the job market, how some of the entry level jobs they require you to have like few years of experience. Yeah. This is the sort of thing you're talking about, right? Yeah. Where you're doing all these like extra projects on your own dime. Yeah. You're experiencing things or taking out internships on your own yeah. on your own dime. This is what a lot of people don't really think about when they're going through with just like road road mindset of oh I just have to score good, good grades and then I'll get mm-hmm. a job kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So did you did you personally lead that uh that, that program yourself? The, the game yeah, we yourself? usually work with partners in mm. almost any program we do. Mm. Um, Praxium comes in as the education specialist. So the partners come in as experts and they give us content, they give us uh, knowledge and we work with them to uh, work with the students. Mm. So we kind of co-teach uh, rather than like just leading everything. I see. And also the, the experts can provide like mentorship. Exactly. And, mentorship and, and stuff like that. It's, uh, they also provide networking opportunities because mm. Uh, for these kids, just 16, right? Yeah. Uh, got them to meet an actual game developer and mm. we just bring them to events, we bring them to meet other developers, visit mm. officers mm. and schools have a hard time offering that. Yeah. <laughs> Liar so much but for us, it's just casual. It's like every other day we're just going somewhere Yeah. and there's so much value for them. Yeah. So I just, I'm just curious, you know, were the parents okay with this? Um, <laughs> that's interesting because um, I was worried about that. Because I don't think the the kids didn't pay for themselves, right? Some of them did. That's, ama- really? that's the amazing thing. So, oh. um, one of him, one of the kids, um, he actually took up part-time jobs mm. to uh, of pay for this. Oh, I mean, wow. not specifically this. I mean, it's up to him how he accounts for his money. Right? Sure, sure. But he, he took up a part-time job and everything. And perhaps his views on his own things. But mm. uh, he did pay out of his own pocket. Mm. Another student, um, he got his parents to agree to pay for it. Mm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't imagine that there would be many parents who would be too enthusiastic yeah. about sending their kids to like a game design course. Yeah, yeah. So I, yeah. I think, um, but it wasn't easy for us to get to that stage with them. Mm. Um, we had to kind of build a relationship with them, uh, understand them and uh, work with them on their interests first. Mm. Um, it was only after a couple of interactions that um, they really found that they learned something. Mm. And then they went back to their parents and said, hey, I actually learned something from this and yeah. I think it's really interesting and I want to learn this. And I think if, if a kid come, goes to a parent and says, I want to learn this thing, I think it's very useful. 
Um, I think that's how they, they managed to convince them. You don't get to hear that from students a lot. Yeah. No one, <laughs> no one comes back from there. They have math tuition center yeah. saying, you know. I want more. I want more. <laughs> right. Okay, so on the last question on the uh, value proposition, and mm. I guess we've been talking about this the whole time, yeah. right? Talking on the idea of uh, UX design. Yeah. So, I, I want to ask you, other than uh, it being a feature of your of your programs, right? How else does UX design fit into maybe Praxium mm. as a whole? Right. Yeah. So that's uh, UX design is my training mm. in university, and that's where I pick things up. Yeah. Um, it's a really interdisciplinary uh field. Mm-hmm. Uh, it covers things from design itself yeah. to psychology to business to mm-hmm. um, even programming sometimes. So you take a lot of these uh, different fields and you kind of uh, make use of that to understand how to design experiences. Mm. So when a customer walks beside a uh, walks near a coffee shop or a cafe, he starts to smell the the smell of the roast. Mm-hmm. He starts to look at the, the the cashier or the the staff and sees. Oh, this looks quite pleasant and quite interesting. Let mm. me walk up to it, mm. and then he starts to have a certain experience with the whole place. Mm. Um, that experience was designed; it wasn't random. Mm. So that's the kind of work um, UX designers do. Increasingly, you see that in tech companies, yeah, because they make a lot of money and they're able to pay a lot. Yeah, which is why a lot of apps like Facebook, like uh, Instagram, they're so addictive. Yeah. Because, um, UX designers put a lot of work into crafting that experience. Yeah. And rather than uh, applying this skill into digital products, we decided to apply it in education. Because mm. education, no matter what you say, hasn't been innovated in the longest time. Yes. And that's what um, a lot of the work at Praxium is about. How can we redesign education? Mm. How can we make it more meaningful for students and how can we take advantage of all the technological advancements that have happened yeah. and make use of that in education? Yeah. And also, also another um, interesting aspect of this UX is that I don't know if you consider this part of the aspect, but when you're describing it, uh, as I was reading your, your, your blog on your experience visiting uh, Bedok View Secondary School, yeah. you mentioned this aspect of like, you know, uh, trying out different uh, different ways and then receiving feedback and yeah. then improving on, upon the experience. Mm-hmm. And sort of like these little mini experiments to get... Yeah. this, And this is the approach you take to get like the final product. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I was thinking you, you not only could put it to... Uh, on, the, on the field of education, but even in career search. Yeah, well. of course, of course. Yeah. So I remember re- uh, listening to a podcast, I think a few, few months ago, right? They were talking about a story about this lady. She had a job for like 15 years or something yeah. and then when she got retrenched she didn't know what to do mm-hmm. but, then, but then after all she took like a course on they call it design thinking so I don't know if it's the same it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of overlaps it's, yeah yeah you can call them synonymous yeah but the, the approach is similar where, where, you, where they, they tried out you know many different things and see which ones yeah. which one eventually worked out in the end right so she, so she, she, she took a course on design thinking and then eventually she, she had this she took this approach and put it to career search as well but she tried out many different things mm-hmm. or many different uh, occupations, see which one she like, and then eventually found out find her next yeah. her next calling. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of um, what you're doing. Yeah, that's exactly what we're doing <laughs> for the students. Yeah, um, yeah, a lot of times we tell them um, if you're interested in medicine, mm. can you validate that? Mm. Can you check with data and can you check uh, by experiencing it yourself whether that's really what you like? Yeah, uh, and you keep doing that. 
Because a lot of times, we don't really do that with our lives. We just mm. follow down a path. Mm. It sucks. It's yeah. not working out. We still do it. Yeah. And we don't go through that iteration of improving or adjusting. Yeah. So I just want to throw this idea out by you and see if you agree agree me or not. Yeah. So I was talking about the gig economy in the in the introduction, right? Yeah. So I was thinking, you know, you were mentioning a lot about say maybe for the older older people, thirties and forties, mm-hmm. you know, if they get retrenched, it's a lot harder for them to try and figure out something new because they have a lot of opportunity costs, yeah. a lot of different responsibilities they have. Do you think maybe the gig economy is sort of like it cushions that blow a bit? Um, a little bit, um, but it really depends. Even mm. for gig economies, gig work, right? Mm. Um, there's a lot of different tiers of it. So yeah, like Uber driving or Deliveroo and all yeah. that. Those are gigs as well. Yeah. Um, but they don't. They're kind of low skill mm. or low level gigs, and they don't actually require very specific skills. Mm. Um, and they are the easy. They're the easiest gigs to be replaced and they pay the least as well. Mm. And um, I think that's what a lot of people fixate on when they talk about the gig economy. Yeah. Um, I find that, yes, that can cushion the blow, but if and when Uber decides to roll out self-driving cars, that's going to have further impact. Because yeah. I think low-level jobs, they're the easiest to kind of automate yeah. and, and replace. Yeah. Um, so that's worrying. Yeah, so so we shouldn't, you know, even even if it does cushion a little bit, you shouldn't really depend yeah. on the job. The only thing that I find um, the positive that about the gig economy mm. is that if you have a specific skill, mm. or you have a specialized skill, mm. uh, think of yourself as being able to provide value based on that skill. Yes. So that is more empowering. Yes. That forces people to think about what can I offer as an individual yeah, and I think everyone, even if you are not part of the gig economy, even if you are fully employed mm. with a big company, it's useful to think of yourself in that context. How are you as an individual improving the bottom lines of this company? Yes. How are you as an individual providing value to the yes. the company? Yeah, everyone can benefit from that. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's really interesting you brought up that point because I saw one of your videos you were mentioning talking about the gig economy. Yeah, You're talking about how you did some freelance design. Work, yeah, it? still doing it. Yeah, so so this is like one of the the skill 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 work you're talking about, yeah. right? Whereby not only is it an opportunity for you to sort of maybe tie over from job to job, but it yeah. also gives you opportunity to develop on your interests, yeah. take it to the next level. Yeah. So for most yeah. people who are like freelancers and all that, um, mm. they try very hard to get a lot of business to make a living and everything, and that's their career. Mm. That's fine. Um, uh, for me, I'm not really a full time freelancer. I just do it on the side for mm. fun, and when people ask me to. So it's really more of a hobby mm. and it helps me brush up my UX design skills Yeah, and I can then apply that for, for my, rip my real work at mm. Praxium. And it's kind of like being paid to improve yourself, yeah. being paid to do what you like. Yeah. So I think of it that way. And so I take on projects now and then, enjoy it. And not just that, I get to meet a lot of people mm. uh, as I go for these freelance projects from yeah. a lot of different fields. Yeah. And that again... Uh, supports the work that I do at Praxium. Yeah, you know, drawing a parallel here in in the in the, in the video you're talking about the gig economy. You were you're talking a lot about your experience growing up with games, right? Yeah, and that was what led you to have UX design and yeah. stuff like that. Similarly, in my my experience, you know, I used to play a lot of music and I, I used to record a lot of uh songs and stuff like that. You know, uh, with uh with audio software and stuff like that. Yeah. and that was what made me comfortable with starting out this podcast in the first place because. I already already had this familiar familiarity with the with the software. The, yeah. the 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 startup cost wasn't that, that high. 
So, yeah. so in the sense that I, I, I want to do it because I, I can do things like meet cool people like mm-hmm. you. Yeah. But at the same time, provide provide value to other people who might yeah. be interested in these kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of topics. That's yeah. So, so it's really, it's really, it's really interesting how how you know the gig economy can really help you, uh, sort of improve or yeah. Or, or, yeah better your lives uh, yeah in that sense all right so that's, that's very good and that's uh i'm gonna move on from the the value proposition question so as i as i alluded to earlier in the introduction the problems that exist in education in singapore could be summed up with the this is this is an idea that you introduced uh in your video what's your purpose in life which you call the checklist mentality yeah and i really like the phrase for that because <laughs> it kind of sums it up very nicely yeah so so do you think this idea has, you know, merits mm-hmm. in society. I think the best way you can think of this checklist, right, is that mm. they are guidelines. Yeah. And they can be tweaked. Yeah. Um, in Army and National Service, right, we, we work off checklists all the time. Mm. And um, I was, I, I happened to be an officer and I got to have, have to go through a lot of checklists too. Mm. But I found that, like, a lot of times you need to adjust. You need to adjust your plan. Your plan's going to be the situation is going to be different from what the, the checklist is going to require or mm. ask of you. Mm. And um, checklists, do, they do have value. They, they help you figure out what you might have missed. Mm. But it's for you to evaluate uh, what's important. And a lot of times, that's not being done. I, see. I think that's the big problem. Yeah. In, 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 in the case of education or career choice, it's more the case that people are relying too much on Yeah, like, um, right? I gotta first get good grades, and then I gotta go into a good university, then I get a good job, and all yeah. that. Um, and that's a checklist, right? Yeah. But on the side, you see people who didn't have a good uh, education, didn't have, go to university. Amazing career, amazing yeah. lives. Yeah, and yet there's still this huge stigma against people maybe who didn't do too well uh, in school growing up. Yeah. If, they, if they went to IT or they were in like, yeah. were in like the express program, something yeah. like that. And yeah. I think the checklist is just a heuristic. It's a it's a way for you to easily understand the complex world. Mm. Um, but the world is complex, and a simple tool can never fully encapsulate the complexity. Mm. And it helps if we develop the intellectual or mental capacity to to evaluate and, and assess the world mm. rather than just relying on a simple checklist. Yeah, yeah. I guess also you could say maybe it's a part of uh, growing up, coming an adult. Yeah, you know, becoming independent and uh, earn, earning, earning to, how to say, to make yourself self-sustainable. Yeah, is that eventually you have to wean yourself off this checklist? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yourself off this idea that you think that just doing all these things can can uh, can 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 help you. Yeah, keep you comfortable for the rest. And of your it's life funny, right? Because um, I think everyone can generally agree that every. Every person is different. Mm. Everyone's unique. Mm. And yet, we, we are expected to live the same way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's kind of an interesting yeah. point that you brought up. Alright, so, in the same video of uh, what's your, what your purpose in life, you bring up another wonderful point about how your purpose should be outward focused. You know, it should be providing value to other people. Yeah. So, we, we talked about this briefly earlier. So, could you explain this idea and you know, why Why should the individual's own purpose not be inward focus, but rather outward focus? Purpose is, is, is an elusive thing, right? Um, mm. Many people struggle to figure it out. Mm. Um, and yet, when, when you, you, you... It's easy to understand when you reframe it a little. Mm. If you reframe it and ask the question, 
Can you list examples in history mm-hmm. where someone was a very purposeful person? Okay. That list starts to, to form really quickly. Mother Teresa, Gandhi, mm. Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. all these people. Sure. And they're all purposeful people. Yeah. And the commonality among all of them was they were never living for themselves. <laughs> they were living for some cause or some change or some thing in society. Yeah. You don't really list people who are purely self-serving and rich and everything mm. when you think of purposeful people. Mm. You think of them as successful, but not necessarily purposeful. Mm. And I think that well, that's an interesting way to, to think about purpose and why it should be outward focus. Because it seems by definition that it has to serve some goal. Mm. It has to serve some uh, people. Mm. If it serves your own purpose... It's only going to be purposeful for yourself and not everyone else. Yeah. So the only one who's going to think that your life purpose is meaningful is yourself and no one else. <laughs> yeah. So, so I just want to maybe sort of like, maybe interject with an idea. Though. Yeah. Okay. And it, it's, it's one, one idea that bring up, trying mm-hmm. to introduce throughout, throughout this podcast is that, okay, you, you, you may be right that all these people, these purposeful people, yeah. they, they, they don't really serve their own interests and they are very, very outward focused. Yeah. Right? But think about maybe uh, the company Amazon, yeah. right? And the founder, Jeff Bezos. Yeah. One of their top, top principles is yeah. the idea that the customer is king. Yeah. Yeah. So in that sense, one of their purpose, one of their, their purposes can be very, very outward focused. Yeah, but they are able to save. They are able to both serve their interests, their own interests, and the customer's yeah. interests. Yeah, 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 and 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 that's that's you know I, I've been calling it the the whole time. The whole time I've been I, I I've been talking about this idea. I call it this beautiful idea of capitalism called yeah voluntary mutual exchange. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. Whereby 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 in a system where both people have to voluntarily agree in in a transaction, uh-huh. both both parties necessarily have to give value. To one another, yeah. So it's like when 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 you're talking about being outward serving, you know, you're only you you your best, you're best able to do it if you also get something in return. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. So 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 in that sense, you know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I I don't want to I don't want to say that the, the you know Martin Luther King or Mother. Oh yeah, yeah, they, I, they, I get it. They, they, they weren't they weren't self serving. I was just saying I just want to point out the idea that you know companies they themselves they can be outward serving as well. Yeah, they yeah, can yeah. be providing value as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's true. So um I, I think earlier like I mentioned a couple of times about serving people mm. and helping people. Mm. And I think there's always value in that. Like mm. um my ability to help someone provides value to them mm. and as a result I should be able to gain some value out of that. Yeah. It could be non monetary in mm. nature mm. it could be monetary in nature doesn't really matter mm. but there is an exchange of value mm. in a way yeah. and um, that happens when you, you serve someone yeah. but when you when you're inward focused you tend to focus on taking from someone yes. and the problem with you just wanting to take and take and take all the time people yes. are gonna start realizing that you don't really want to give you yes yes you you've got nothing to give back yes yes you, you, this is precisely the case with the artist you were talking about right yeah now, right when the artist is just drawing for himself or herself, yeah. they, they're not going to survive. And that's where yeah. the stigma comes from. But when they're applying these skills and applying it where other companies can find value yeah. in their work, that's where they, get, uh, that's where they can provide yeah. value and that's where they get, you know, exactly. they get sustained. And um, 
not to say it's wrong to draw for yourself or create art for what you find meaningful, mm. but um, we exist in society. We don't exist on our own. Sure. And yes. when we serve others, yes. um, they give us the flexibility to then serve ourselves afterwards also. Mm. Mm. Yeah. All right. So last question here. Okay, so in one of your videos, right, you mentioned that the long-term goal of Praxium is to be its own school with a bottom-up approach that focuses on the interests of the individual. So talking about this idea about how you want to re- redesign education mm-hmm. and the way it appeals to students, right, focuses on the user. So how viable do you think uh, this idea is in Singapore where you have to compete with subsidized public schools where, where, whereby they, they are far more economically popular? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, um, I acknowledge the huge challenge. That's <laughs> yeah. Um. So here's the thing, we were talking about pur- purpose, right? And mm. outward focus and serving people, mm. right? So my intention in setting up this school isn't some egocentric or, or self-righteous idea of what should be, what the world should be. Mm. But it's really focused on what Singapore needs. And my attempt to, to start something like this, it's mm. in service of Singapore. Mm. I could very well do this in any other country, mm. um, but that wouldn't serve the country that I, I love and I grew up in. And that's really where I'm coming from about doing this. Because I feel like um, with the current education system, we're putting all our eggs in one basket. Mm. We need to diversify. We need to try out different approaches. Yes. And with the coming future economy, with it being so uncertain, disruption happening all the time. We cannot stick to the same we, Yeah, we right? need to have our, our, our risk spread out. We need to have uh, developed our, our people in many different areas. Mm. And this is where the motivation for this school came about from. Yes, it's going to be economically challenging, but I'm not uh, against the idea of it being possibly part of a public uh, effort as well. So I, I don't believe that um, one approach I could have taken was to join the MOE mm. and rise up through the ranks and go so on and so forth. Mm. But probably it's probably going to take a long time. And yeah. by then I might have gotten disillusioned, hated <laughs> yeah. by the whole system. Yeah. Um, and just, once again, it's something that was inspired by the US mm. on how private entities can make huge change. Yeah. And so I gained the confidence to, to try out and do it on my own in yeah. private. Yeah. Gain the credibility, gain the results, make the, the drastic changes that's only possible by the private sector because mm. they're not as accountable as public sector is. Mm. So they can be more risk tolerant. Yeah. And so try out from that angle, achieve some success, and then... Uh, perhaps in future merge and synergize with what the Ministry of Education is doing and we could find ways to work together. Yeah. One of the possible ideas was um, for it to be partly funded by the, the public sector. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure but if you've been to schools, uh, few most schools aren't very, very experimental. Mm-hmm. They do try and tested approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do very little testing. Yeah. I mean, testing in terms of the pedagogy, testing the pedagogy. They right. do a lot of testing on the students. Right, right, right. Um, so what I'm thinking is uh, education needs innovation and what if my school in the future could be an experimental test bit mm. where any experiment you want to do on education and pedagogy, mm. ministry could be paying this future school and that could be funding how we run. Mm. Uh, and we like basically run commissioned experiments for them. Yeah, and they don't need to take on the burden of uh, accountability. Yeah, because it's not an MOE school. Yeah, uh, 
and we uh, can we can specifically target parents who are willing to take on that approach. Yeah, because in, in in a real way, what you guys are doing with like the schools and the pathways program, yeah, it's already taking public funding. The school is yeah. paying for these programs, yeah. but the the students are the the end user. Yeah, they're the ones who get the experience, right? Yeah. So parents are already getting subsidized on this front. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but you know. <laughs> we're talking about this this difficult idea of this checklist mentality and yeah. how str- how deeply rooted it is, mm-hmm. especially for the older generation. Yeah, yeah. I, I really don't know if you can go out there and launch. Yeah. And, and, and compete publicly. Yeah, I, I mean, it's not a it's it's a long term plan, like I said. Like yeah. Fifteen twenty years. Yeah. In fifteen twenty years, um, I would be a parent. Yeah. Who whose kid might be, uh, applicable for such a school, mm. and so. I'm kind of building for myself as a, as a possible client. Mm. Um, and I'm aware that also people of my generation uh, have a different mindset than those of the older ones. Mm. And so in a sense, I'm also building for my friends and building for my peers. Mm. And I see this trend that's moving that people are losing faith in the traditional education system. Yep. They are looking for alternatives. Yep. Funding, of course, is, is one major concern. Yeah. But uh, well, I have some time to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a long-term plan. So, all right. On, on, that, on that point, right, I was wondering if you've ever heard of the economist Milton Friedman. Yeah. So I, I don't know if you read his essay on education. Ah, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. So, so he was talking about... So, so Milton Friedman, to, to put it briefly, he's a, he's a conservative or maybe a libertarian. right? Mm-hmm. So he, he's against the idea of big government because he thinks they're too uh, bureaucratic, too inefficient. Yeah. He, he prefers the government to be smaller, to be limited. In mm. a sense, to, to, for, for private sector individuals to take the initiative to solve problems yeah. or, or whatever, right? However, on the on the aspect of, of education, he is a little bit more compromising because he, he notes that uh, that education in general has sort of some civic value mm-hmm. in a sense that because we live in democracies, we need to have uh, at least some education about how, how to live so that we're able to vote our proper leaders yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. So in that sense, he was okay with public funding of uh, education, but through a voucher system. Okay. In the sense that schools are not running. Uh, sorry, the government is not running the schools, but they are pay. They are they are they are subsidizing the parents. I see. So what what it is is that parents get uh, vouchers, which they can use to go and uh, uh, apply their kids in some school, and then the government will pay for that. Okay. So your so your your school in that sense will be com- competing with other schools as well. It's just that the parents don't have the burden of burden of this, yeah. So it, okay. it achieves both, you know, the idea of uh, removing this administrative aspect of uh, yeah. the government. At the same time, it allows the public education to be taught. But I guess the the one thing that I would say is a little bit different from his idea and your idea is that Friedman still really believed that there was a core set of subjects that need to be needed to be taught. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not against that. Uh, I believe that still is necessary. Mm. Uh, which is why the the school the the age group that I'm targeting mm. um, is secondary and above. Oh. So a lot of the primary education should have covered the basics. Okay. Uh, we will still have some structured um, lessons and some structured um, programs. Mm. Um, I mentioned how in the integrated program I did language arts, right? Yeah. I think that that's valuable for anyone. Mm. And that's something everyone should do. Mm. Um, I, I'm... I, I, I don't know if I'm coming across as being like some biased or anything, but yeah. um, it really 
uh, improves on what you talked about, like critical thinking mm. and civic mindedness. Yes. And I think that is something everyone should have. Yes. Uh, but when it comes down to like subjects like physics or, or uh, li- li- literature, that that I leave it to the students to to figure out. Like mm. they have the freedom to to figure out what they want to do. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so I'm, I'm glad we could see eye to eye on that yeah, point. Yeah. <laughs> Because yeah, I was I was worried how you're gonna take that yeah, idea. Yeah, I'm, 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 I totally understand. <laughs> There's some yeah. basic uh, education that needs yeah. to be done for everyone. Because I was looking at, at at your long-term plan, I was thinking, you know, if it's gonna be economically challenging for you to compete now, if we had a voucher system, it'll be much more easier. Yeah, thanks for, for the idea. Yeah, for for you to compete. Helpful. Yeah, especially maybe maybe in. Maybe in twenty thirty years time, yeah. when when we are the generation that are now the parents yeah. with the kids in school, so you know maybe we'll have different ideas. Yeah. I, I do like the idea. That's also why um, I'm running Praxium as like a social enterprise rather mm. than say a foundation or a charity. Yeah, because I believe that um, you need to show results. You need people to believe in your product. Yes, and be willing to patronize and uh, pay you. Yes, in a sense, mm. rather than say just taking money and doing work and not caring too much about how much impact that's actually having. Yeah, yeah. You need to show that you're accountable. Yeah. At least you know how to run a business. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Alright. So, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. No I know problem. it's been a pretty long interview. It's been a great, great pleasure. So, I noticed that Praxim recently hosted an Art Jam session last yeah. week and that is currently hosting another event called yeah, yeah. Uh, What Schools Don't Teach. Yep. So do you want to maybe talk about take some time to talk about what this is and maybe if you have some upcoming events you want to promote? Oh sure. Um, well, upcoming events not so much. I'll let you know again. <laughs> sure. It's been pretty busy. Uh-huh. Uh, the art jam it was really just a, a for fun kind of event. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about how we want to teach things that kids want to learn. Yeah. Things that they're interested in. Yeah. Art is something that youth are generally interested in. Yeah. We wanted to let that be a, a starting point, mm. like a first step. Let's just have some fun, make some art. Yeah. And in the process, uh, we kind of educate them a little mm. what it's actually like to be an artist. Mm. So some of the things that were a little different was uh, we actually spent some time figuring out what a theme and what kind of messages we wanted to send in the, the art that the students would uh, produce. Mm. At the end of it, we also had an exhibition. Mm. So we had them showcasing and explaining the, the artworks that they do. Okay. So all of that kind of uh, slowly hints at the kind of uh, education that we would work we would convey to them mm. where it's not just about the craft it's mm. about its relevance to everyone else mm. and along the way how can you uh, make a living out of it mm. which is why that exhibition part was so important because mm. you have to know that you create art then people need to see yes. then they need to give feedback and they need to uh, be willing to pay yes. so we kind of hinted that through the art gem yeah. uh, with the, this week's program mm-hmm. What Schools Don't Teach um it's a five-day thing. Um, yeah, we, we don't, we're not taking any sign-ups anymore. <laughs> so the first day is really um, um, a career discovery thing. So mm-hmm. we work with students and we uh, have conversations about life and meaning and purpose. Mm. So they see the bigger picture. Mm. They don't often have conversations like what we're having right now. Mm-hmm. They don't often have conversations about yeah. why they need to study. Yeah. The answer tends to be, so you have a good job. <laughs> And then you can ask, and, and it's not their answer, right? It's yeah, the answer exactly. that they've been fed, sort of. Yeah. Yeah. And you just do like the whole five whys thing, right? Mm. Like, so why do I need a good job? Mm. Why do I need to make a lot of money? Yeah. Why do I need to do this? Yeah. And we kind of go through that process and help them see that there's a 
bigger thing out there mm. and you need to really answer these big questions before you can find that motivation for what you want to do. Mm. So we worked with them through that for the first day, uh, figuring things out, sharing stories about people in mm-hmm. their lives. Um, and also some basic career skills uh, like writing resume, mm. um, doing a portfolio and stuff yeah. like that. And some personality profiling just for some self-awareness. Yeah. And um, then the next four days, um, they're all about different careers. Mm. So then the second day is about entrepreneurship. Mm. Um, they get to understand what it means to start a business. Right. Um, the basics of like profit, revenue, costs and all that, uh, business models and mm-hmm. how they work. And they'd have to come up with a, a business idea mm. at the end of the day. Then on the following day, they work off that idea yeah. and design a product or design a service or design whatever it is that their business was supposed to create. And we work with them from a design standpoint in prototyping and creating something uh, tangible. Mm-hmm. Following day, it's marketing. Then they have to spend the time uh, shooting videos, taking photographs, um, creating a, a collaterals, marketing... And to help showcase this business idea mm. along with the product that was designed in the previous day. Mm. So they have some videos to showcase and yeah. put online and everything. And the final day is about uh, software. So we teach them what uh, is possible with technology. Mm. And the basic is for them to set up a website, for them to put up uh, the story and the content and like the whole like startup website and everything. So over this one week, they're going to do all that yeah. and there's going to be something tangible at the end. Yeah. And that in itself is uh, super valuable. Yeah. Sounds like an entrepreneur bootcamp. In a sense, but we don't want it to be like just entrepreneurship because I don't think everyone should be an entrepreneur, but they can benefit from the mindset. Yeah. And so we focus on different verticals each day. Design, marketing, and technology. You know, and you know what what I love most about about this uh, program that you're doing right now, what schools don't teach, so not only is it talking about all these uh, useful skills that, that employers might be looking out for yeah. in the future, it also teaches kids to think about, think outside and, and how they can provide value and yeah. how they're providing value. Like the gig economy conversation we've had. Right? Exactly. You pick up four different skills yeah, and yeah, you yeah. can start doing yeah. four different gigs. And, and, and all these different things, you know, you're, you're talking about uh, maybe design. Design is focusing about the user experience. You're talking about marketing. Marketing is talking about what your audience wants to see or how yeah. your audience yeah. wants, to, wants to see this. and Like telling a story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so it's really good to like open up their minds and, and, and sort of like have this like outward focused uh, thinking. Yeah. Uh, which I would say is kind of lacking <laughs> in the education system. It really is what, what schools don't teach in a sense. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, okay. So I guess that's it for today's episode. Um, yeah, so if you really like this episode, please do do me a big favor and share or subscribe and provide a review on iTunes, Stitcher. Otherwise, if you want to keep up with the latest episodes, you can follow the Economical Rise on podcast on social media. Links will be provided below. Thank you so much, Lewis, for thank being you. on the show. And thank you for listening. This has been your host, Danny, with guest Lewis Pua of Praxium. And hope you tune in next time to serve you the grains of capitalism. <music>